Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast Live! <laughs> ben, you want to tell them where we are? Uh, yeah, we are coming to you from the theater at Fort Flagler State Park on beautiful Puget Sound in beautiful Washington State, where we're holding Trothmoot this year. Trothmoot 2019! And uh, have a great crowd here with us today. So happy. And even more importantly, we are going to talk about history with people who can actually give us firsthand knowledge on some events. So we're talking about today the early history of the trove, which I'll be honest about, Ben, Mm -hmm. not my strongest place. Okay. But that's okay because we have... We have Melody Grundy. Hello. She is the wife of uh, Stefan Grundy, otherwise known as Kveldolfer Gunderson, who has been a long-term member of the Troth almost from the very beginning, and uh, certainly one of the most respected writers on heathen topics. And we have another one of the most respected writers on heathen topics with us, uh, the fabulous Diana Paxson. Yay! You know, Diana, I have, I have friends who uh, are in the SCA who, like, fangirled when they found out I knew you. <laughs> It was really quite disturbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my real claim to fame. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. But yeah, if we start with the history of the troth, we have to go back a little bit earlier and start with the history of the Ausatru Free Assembly, which had been founded by Steve McNallan. We'll do a later podcast dedicated to Steve McNallan because he is a very uh, interesting person. Or two. One way of or three. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a lot to cover all of his uh, eccentricity. Right. He has, he has some very interesting views. But he had founded a group called the Viking Brotherhood while a college student and ROTC cadet at uh, Midwestern State University in the bustling metropolis of Wichita Falls, Texas. He says he had been privately worshipping the Viking gods since 1968, but he went public in 1972 and started publishing a journal called The Runestone, the first one of which had a run of 11 copies. It's fitting it was called The Runestone because it was produced on technology that wasn't much less ancient than runestones, called a mimeograph machine. So I'm curious to the audience, how many of you guys even know what a mimeograph is? Okay, so everyone here over like 35 knows what it is. All the kids here are going, what? (laughs) So we'll, we'll skip most of the history of the Viking Brotherhood. Once he got back from his time in military service, he was a U.S. Army Airborne Ranger uh, stationed in Germany, and I'll give him credit, he continued to put out the runestone and try to keep the organization together while training as a ranger and serving in Germany. When he came back, he settled down in the logical place uh, for a conservative former Catholic Texan who'd been an ROTC cadet and then an Airborne Ranger in the Vietnam era. Uh, He settled in Berkeley. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because, of course... Now, I can speak to that. All right. So, the Asatru Free Assembly was, at that time, the only heathen organization anybody had ever heard of. And my brother-in-law, Paul Edwin Zimmer, who was into the heathen gods long before I was, used to attend their open meetings, that, which would be in public parks in Berkeley. Paul used to say that the reason that he liked to attend these things was because everybody, everybody who had an interest would show up. And when the old Norwegians ran into the neo-Nazis, 
things would get quite interesting. (laughs) 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 And uh, I did not uh, attend any of those, but we did ask McNellan and his first wife over to dinner at Greyhaven one evening. And we were all sitting around going, wow, this, what you're doing sounds really cool and, and we should do more things and we really should be doing more with the Vanier. And the atmosphere began to chill just a little. And we could have, well, didn't quite say orgies, but we were clearly going in that direction and Steve and his wife were clearly not going in that direction. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the next thing we knew, they had moved out of Berkeley to Turlock which, uh, if you know California, in a way it seemed appropriate, she said snarkily, because Turlock is a town in uh, the Central Valley of California, which was colonized by Okies during the Depression, and is best known for raising turkeys. Insert punchline there. Right. right. <laughs> uh, the AFA, the first AFA, continued to operate in, uh, for uh, quite some time after that, and I did have a bit more contact with them later on. Should I tell my story? <laughs> Another sure. story? Yeah, sure. Okay. Please. So we didn't actually make the outdoor ritual, but we were invited to the after party at the home of Prudence Priest's uh, sister <laughs> and brother-in-law. Prudence Priest was one of the early, early members, and like I said, everybody, whatever their political opinions, came to this because it was the only game in town. Now, Prudence had a a coven called Freya's Folk, which was one of the, I believe, one of the charter groups in the Covenant of the Goddess, as well as being a primarily heathen-oriented but put together along Wiccan lines. You probably could, I think, legitimately call what Prudence was doing uh, Wicca troop. But she did, in fact, know a lot. Uh, she had studied a lot, and she knew everybody who was doing anything in this area. We, we arrived just as they were about to start the UFO slideshow, which Prudence's brother-in-law was into. And we thought, okay, we're guests. <laughs> it was interesting, although when he got to the part where there are two kinds of aliens, the... Steven Spielberg gray blobby ones and the Aryan ones, I begin to have a somewhat twitchy feeling. But we were guests. <laughs> then the guy in khaki got up and started singing the horse vessel song. <laughs> At this point, a friend of ours that we had brought with us, who was herself a rather colorful figure, she was in a phase where she uh, felt she was the reincarnation of someone who had died at Auschwitz and, in fact, had gotten a number tattooed on her. So you can imagine how well this particular (laughs) episode went over with her. Well, we managed to get her out of the room without any blood being drawn and spent the next hour uh, in the backyard with Prudence and this other guy who was actually from Texas explaining, no, no, we're not all like that, really. Funny how (laughs) these things just keep happening. And and, and then we managed to get get... our friend back out through the house and into the car without anyone being attacked. And the next thing I heard, Prudence's sister had left her husband. <laughs> there were a number of other interesting... I wasn't active in that in the group at that time, I, although I had written a book called Brisingaman, which is about 
the Norse gods, which I look back on wondering where I got some of the information I put in there because <laughs> it was somewhat predictive. But I knew Prudence, and so she kept me up to date on all the gossip. So I heard a lot about some of the things. But I think I should probably turn that back over uh, to you for the next episodes right. in this saga. All right. Yeah, we'll get back in a later episode to, um, to the AFA. I've actually been reading the original uh, runestone because I have them all on microfilm. Um, and it's been really interesting. Yeah, that's another ancient technology right there. The Heathen History Podcast. Hand illuminated. Yes. <laughs> the Heathen History Podcast, brought to you by Interlibrary Loan. Yeah. yeah. But we'll uh, fast forward to uh, about 1987. The AFA has managed to grow quite a bit. McNallan had moved from Berkeley to Turlock to a place in the Sierra Nevadas. I think it's Grass Valley. Yeah, he still lives there. But he actually moved back out to Texas for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, so he was in his hometown of Breckenridge. They briefly actually set up a storefront called the Euro-American Cultural Center in Breckenridge, Texas. I'm not entirely convinced that's the logical place to put one of those, but, you know, well, I wasn't there. To, to, to express this in a Texan way. Bless his heart. Mm, right. <laughs> All right. It was doing an enormous amount. The AFA, they had guilds within the AFA. There was a brewer's guild and a weaver's guild. And a uh, there was even an aerospace technology guild, uh, yeah. many of which had newsletters of their own. Well, the idea was that rockets exploring space was the modern incarnation of the Vikings exploring the North Atlantic, uh, that sort of thing. It, it actually made sense. Yeah, and, keep saying that, Ben. Okay. Keep saying that. And the runestone was coming out. The production values had gotten a lot better. It was well illustrated and had interesting content. And early 87 is when the last issue came out. I believe it was issue 60. And that's about the time that McNallan and his second wife, Maddie, pretty much burned out. They had been running the whole show mostly themselves. McNallan was putting together the runestone and writing sizable chunks of the content and organizing the all things, the annual national meetings they were having, and was putting in, as he later said, uh, something like 50 to 60 hours per week on top of uh, the paying job that he had. And his wife was doing the same. The AFA, which at the time was also true free assembly, was pretty much entirely his baby. He had come up with the idea. He had led it all this time. And when he got burned out, there really wasn't anybody there to take it over. He claims nobody was willing to take up the slack. Towards the end, he was starting to move AFA publications. They had a pretty good range of pamphlets and things at the time over to a for-profit uh, press that he was founding called Nine Rings Press, which I think he was hoping was going to earn him some money, which, to be fair, he needed. And also, maybe as a for-profit uh, press, enable him to publish some things that maybe he couldn't do as a, as a non-profit, because the Viking Brotherhood had actually gotten tax-exempt status from the IRS back in 72 or 73. They were the first uh, heathen group to do that. But by about January 87, he had pretty much had enough. 
and folded the AFA. Nobody could really step up and take over. He ended up taking his group's uh, membership roles and other assets and transferring them to his longtime friend, Mike, a.k.a. Valgard uh, Murray, who'd been leading a large kindred that actually started independently of the AFA, uh, the Arizona kindred. An interesting note to tie back to the episodes we just did on Elsa Christensen, that is the same kindred that was the first one that was considered in fellowship with the Odinist fellowship with Elsa Christensen. Right. And Murray has an interesting past. He'd been a spokesman for a neo-Nazi biker gang called Iron Cross MC. He seems to have mellowed a bit in recent years. The only time that I ever met him, he did not actually go see Heiling or anything around like there. He seemed like a very nice grandfatherly type with a big beard. But I didn't get to interrogate him, so who knows? Anyway, so Mike Murray inherited the resources of the Asatru Free Assembly uh, to found the Asatru Alliance, which is still very much a going concern. It borrowed some aspect of the organization of biker gangs in that it doesn't take individual memberships, although you can subscribe to their journal, uh, Vortru, which uh, looks like this. I've actually got some old issues up here. Show it to the microphone. Yeah, I'll uh, hold them up to the microphone so you can see them. (laughs) Oh, wait, that doesn't work, does it? I'll I'll riffle the pages so you can tell tell that I have these old Vortru copies up here. Yes, he does. They're actually kind of glossy on the they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, the production value on these is pretty nice. I mean, and five bucks back then—that's kind of a hefty price for. Yeah, a, the the production value <laughs> was was very good considering they were using one of those old inkjet printers. So I mean, the the pictures still look like they've been photographed through a mocha frappuccino, but um, <laughs> but but yeah, it was it's a it's an interesting magazine with interesting viewpoints. Interesting, with the big quotation marks around them. So the AA was founded and is still going, but you can't be an individual AA member. You have to be in a kindred that is affiliated uh, with the the AA. The AA does not officially take political positions. (laughs) It's probably fair to say that they have a decidedly more conservative view on sociopolitical issues than the average person in this room. Although... Initially, yes. it was not until it would have been the early 90s, because I remember uh, the point at which we heard that they had added to their bylaws or organizational statement that they were specifically for white Europeans. Ah, yes. Asatru is the ethnic religion of the Northern European peoples. Right. might <clears throat> come as a shock to the Balts and Slavs, but anyway, not my circus, not my clowns. But but in, initially, mm. they had not specified that. Right. So we all got along a lot better at that point. All right. Enter Stephen Flower. Uh, he is a, at the time, he was a graduate student in the Department of Germanic Studies at University of Texas at Austin, <coughs> studying under uh, Edgar Polome, whose work is still well-known and frequently cited. I've used it quite a bit myself. And Edred has been a member of uh, the old AFA uh, since, I believe, 1980 or so. Uh, The number on his membership card was number 72. Uh, So he goes back a long way, and he'd been at the first Althing, the first uh, gathering of the AFA, which I think was uh, 
Steve McNallan was still in the Bay Area, so I think they had it over in Lafayette, up in the uh, the hills overlooking Berkeley and Oakland. And Stephen Flowers, or Edward Thorson, as he's better known, led a couple of workshops on runes and was ordained as a Gothi by McNallan. He contributed a lot of material to issues of the runestone around that time and founded a group for esoteric rune study called the Rune Guild, which I believe is still a going concern. Back in the day, there was actually this outer court that would teach, you know, the basic mundane knowledge of, you know, what are these jaggedy looking letters before they got you into the uh, esoteric stuff. And it was called IRSA, the Institute for Runic Studies Ausatry, I-R-S-A. I can't remember what happened to that, but of course the Rune Guild kept on going. And not, not the same as the Queen and Bothrop Bjarke saga. Right, not the not the queen that in yeah, not the queen in Rolf Saga Kraki. Or the IRS. Or the IRS, true. <laughs> I'd much prefer that kind of IRS. Right. Anyway, so Thorson, you know, feels like, you know, the when the Raven banner has been dropped, someone must be the next one to pick it up. And he gets the idea to found an organization. And his vision is a bit different from the AFAs. And one thing he meant from the get-go is that the new organization should not belong to one person. It shouldn't be any one person's baby. Uh, because if it is, and that one person burns out or something happens, you know, what do you have? You need to distribute your leadership around. And he gets together with a uh, grad student at UT, uh, James Chisholm. And they draft the founding documents of an organization, and they found it uh, in the shape of a magical working on December 20th. I've got here Edward's book called History of the Rune Guild. I'm going to hesitate to recommend it wholeheartedly uh, because he says a few things that could be construed as rather unkind about Kveldolf. Kveldolf's spouse being here, I really don't want to play the role of Ratatosk, uh, carrying insults from one person to the other. That's okay, I probably heard them. Okay. And I wasn't, um, I wasn't there in the first place. I wasn't either. All right. <laughs> she may have said worse, too. All right. <laughs> I, I will say that Edred is an excellent writer, uh, wonderfully bitchy in places, and I mean that in a good way, and certainly very entertaining and erudite and eloquent. And they found the Ring of Troth in a magical working on Mother Night, December 20th, 1987, on the land behind the house where Edward was living at the time, 7110 Meadowwood uh, in Austin. You think maybe we could uh, get enough money to put up a plaque or something like that? <laughs> well, I think it fits in with Austin's whole Keep Austin Weird thing. I'm sure the city would do it. Texas has this really bad habit of putting a historical marker up for everything. So I think if we petitioned, they'd put one up. I mean, mm. it's it's drive through Texas sometime. It's like everywhere, every like 500 yards. Historical marker here, historical marker here. Mm -hmm. We've stopped at a few and I don't even understand them. And my family's from Texas. <laughs> so that's the organization called the, at the time, the Ring of Troth with James Chisholm as the steersman, which at the time was... Uh, concerned with the day-to-day -day operations of the Troth, and Edward Thorson as the Drixton, which is not an <coughs> office that we currently have, and it's basically ceremonial leader, the leader who reigns but does not rule, I suppose. 
He gets all the credit that doesn't have to do the work. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he figured was... out my position in my kindred. No. <laughs> <laughs> and he was also a warder of the lore uh, in charge of training clergy. And Edward, Edred's original vision for clergy was uh, <laughs> basically creating a bunch of Odinic rabbis. Uh, I think more like bishops. Okay. Because uh, first said it was rabbis. Mm-hmm. Well, but his, the structure that he yeah. proposed was very Episcopal. Okay. Yeah, clergy elders were supposed to, well, they were supposed to run hoffs, run temples. Uh, he had visions of having a hof in every major city in the English-speaking world. The idea was that the Hoff would be self-supporting from Hoff calls, <laughs> donations from the uh, from the members. The elders would lead blessings and would teach and conduct research and would work at this full time. And that they'd uh, ordain priests to go out and convert the populace. Uh, yeah, there was something in there about. <laughs> I wish that you guys could see how hard I'm rubbing my temples at this. <laughs> All right. but, and they, they actually did try to found a couple of Hoffs in the Austin area. Unfortunately, they couldn't uh, keep them. They were both, uh, well, one of them was a rented office in a somewhat dodgy part of town. The other one was a bit more rural. Whatever you might think of Edward's original organizational ideas, there just simply weren't enough people. There simply weren't enough boots on the ground to make running a full-time Hoff a uh, job that would... Support anybody. Support anybody. You can't really keep food on the table as a full-time heathen Govi. I don't think you could do it now. At the same time, I look back, because they were pretty young, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Hmm, the 20s. I mean, I think about how idealistic I was, because I, I became a heathen in my mid-20s, how really idealistic I was at that point. And how, man, I wanted to change the world and wanted to do everything, and then life hits you in the face. Mm-hmm. I can't fault them for how... Ha- I mean, I'll be honest with you, I would love the idea that there would be a Hoff in every major city in North America. That would be amazing. But we don't have a critical mass of people to do it yet. That's why we must focus on being awesome heathens, so we draw in more awesome heathens. That's my plan of now, over the that's, wall. that's why I'm giving you all a hundred copies of the Havamal that you need to start leaving in hotel rooms. <laughs> right. The, the, well, you know, you, you do know we, we named we named you know Ben has been named an elder in the trove. So mm-hmm. we were thinking, hello. Hello. My name is Elder Ben. I have a book to share with you. It's called the Havamal. Hello, hello. hello. <laughs> uh, so speaking of books, uh, by then, Edred had already started publishing with a commercial publisher. Right. Uh, Edred had published his manifesto for what was called the Ring of Troth at the time. Uh, well, a book I was called... thinking of Futhark. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he'd already published Futhark, his first book on rune magic. And that, of course, got publicized quite widely, mm-hmm. and I was quite impressed by it because it was the first time I'd seen something that was presenting uh, Norse material as a valid religious system. And in 88 came out the first edition of A Book of Troth, which was his manifesto for what the Ring of Troth was supposed to look like, and I came across a used copy of this circa 1995 in Moe's Books in Berkeley, and that was one of the things that started nudging me in the heathen direction that I've taken so there. So call it synchronicity or whatever you like. I found Ben. Right. (laughs) Oh, I almost forgot the other requirement for these elders that were going to lead Hoffs and work as full-time clergy 
was they were supposed to have university degrees in Germanic studies. Right. That's another thing that was a little bit hard to comply with. <laughs> and, and I would like to add, I don't know the timing exactly because I've been told it by my husband, but while all of these young men and not so young men were running around planning you know, their degrees in Germanic studies and planning their hoves and putting Havamals in every, you know, every hotel room, there was a lo- lovely woman, one woman named Diane Ross, oh. who was making sure that the paperwork actually got done and that the papers got handed out and that the meals were on the table. And my husband referred to her a, a number of times as Diane and the Lost Boys. Yes. Yeah. I never got to meet her, unfortunately, but I went to her uh, memorial service last year, uh, last August, and she seems to have been an absolute force of nature, simply in the energy that she expended publishing Iduna. We've actually yeah. got some issues Which were uh, here at Trothmoot. <laughs> and um, hand-colored. Right. Some of them. Yeah, some of them hand-colored. And basically answering the mail and keeping everything together. Uh-huh. And without her, I think Feldolf himself has admitted that they were a cadre of, you know, bright, brilliant, idealistic young men who couldn't organize a piss-up in a brewery, as they say in Britain. <laughs> and, and so it, it also just really shows the need for female or male, you need, or whatever, you need a, a person who is practical or people who are practical as well as people who are theological. Mm-hmm. And organizations, I've noticed, just swing back and forth. But I gather in the early days, the, the troph- with the exception of, Di- of Diane and probably a few other people we may not know about, but Diane in particular, was very idealistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that's really what held, the, held it together. Because oh, I'll be sure honest with you, if you just had those three guys... I mean, I've watched this being pagan for 20 years. How many organizations have you seen come and go, this is going to be the new bright, shiny heathen organization, and we're going to do this and that, and then it lasts like two years, and they don't have that like organizational person, that person who actually knows how to file taxes (laughs) or, you know, file your nonprofit paperwork and... That's a hard, as someone who is that person, that's a very hard position. Or just the person to answer letters and process membership uh, and subscriptions rather more difficult in the late 80s when uh, the internet was not a thing. I mean, it it existed, of course, but most people weren't on it. And everything is being done by snail mail. And she was working a full-time day job as a legal advocate for immigrants and also putting in probably the equivalent of a full-time job on getting the Ring of Troth up and, and running. She published the first three issues of Iduna, I think James Chisholm himself did, and they've got some really remarkable illustrations that he did. One in particular I remember is supposed to be uh, Odin's eye in Mimir's well, but it frankly looks like the cover of Judas Priest's Screaming for Vengeance album. (laughs) (laughs) But if he says it's the eye in the well, I'll take it. Sure. (laughs) But uh, Diane's touch brought up the, certainly the, the editorial level. The magazine was put together much better, much more consistently. Uh, Of course, it was still being put together by printing things out on sheets of paper and pasting them down uh, with rubber cement. And I didn't bring it, but I've actually got the original rubber cement paste-down version of one of the early Aduna issues that Diane uh, had in her files. I think it's issue 16. 
So this was a lot harder or, well, maybe it wasn't a lot harder, but it was frustrating in different ways when you don't have Adobe InDesign, <laughs> yeah. which removes a whole level of frustrations and adds a whole new level more. Yeah. I think it was an important time. I think the optimism was important because if you didn't have that, you were going to just, you know, that gave them something at least to strive for. Well, mm -hmm. something was going on in 87, apparently, because it was in the summer that, that, that previous summer, in August of 87, that I had my interesting encounter with Odin. And then January started my first rune class. Despite the fact that I had written the book Brisingham in, in 1982, when I finally did encounter the heathen community, everybody had read Brisingham and assumed I'd been heathen for years. <laughs> you, yeah, you weren't. That's, <laughs> that's news to me. I thought she'd written that after she was right. heathen. Well, then, I was a pagan. Yeah, but like I, I just think you were heathen when you wrote it. So, mm -hmm. and and for anyone listening in Europe, heathen and pagan are actually two different things in the yes. United States. Whereas in Scandinavia, the word heathen is used in place of the word pagan. And even my old knitting books from the nineteen sixties will refer to heathen period knitting. Yes. So just just clarifying mm -hmm. that. Then things started getting weird. In uh, okay. <laughs> Weird in my religion? Mm -hmm. Weirder? Started? Heavens. No. In 1989, before Edred had founded the Ring of Troth, uh, by the way, before I forget, one thing I want to add in there before I go on to how weird things got in 89, the original name of this organization was the Ring of Troth, abbreviated R-O-T, and <laughs> I can... Yes, yes, yes. I've already seen and, that. And I, I am... I think mainly responsible for dropping that <laughs> when I pointed out Thank that the you. acronym right, really was not wise. You you can still probably find various um, you know archived mailing list entries and Usenet newsgroup uh, rants. If anybody remembers Usenet uh, complaining about the rot, oh ha ha ha. <laughs> but actually, Edred meant that, and he oh. wasn't thinking of rot. Naturally, he was thinking in Old Norse and <laughs> yeah, was thinking good. of rot, yeah. uh, which is the word for root. Yeah. So the Ring of Troth was supposed to be the root. If he'd found it in Germany, that might have worked. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, there was rot in the root. Then I'm Cheng. In 89, word started spreading that Edred and also James Chisholm uh, had been members of a group called the Temple of Set. Uh, now, for those that don't know, Anton LaVey had founded this organization called the Church of Satan, and Edred had very briefly been a member, uh, but had let his membership lapse. LaVey was, his previous job had been uh, carny, and it kind of shows his own philosophy was basic atheism, uh, or if there was a god, it was so remote as to not concern itself with humans at all. Uh, actually, he basically admitted that his philosophy was Ayn Rand's objectivism with the serial numbers filed off. And Satan in the uh, original Church of Satan is not a god that's out there. It's basically a symbol of your own desires and your own personal drives all the things that civilization and religion are trying to suppress, but which you can tap into as a source of power. Now, a former Air Force officer, Michael Aquino, 
actually had an encounter with a being that he called Set after the Egyptian god and founded the Temple of Set as a theistic satanic organization where Set is real, he exists, but Set is not the god of evil. He's the god who brings enlightenment and curiosity and drive. As I understand it, he's not worshipped as such, but he's honored as the god who gives the gift of inquisitiveness and creativity, ultimately leading toward human advancement and ultimately self-transformation. You could argue, and Edward Thorson would, that this is actually rather Odinic, that what Odin is about is neither salvation nor damnation on the Christian model, but about winning knowledge and wisdom and ultimately leading people to sacrifice self to self and transform, I suppose. Diana is the ranking Odinist. You might have some things to say about that, but you can at least see that the oh, yeah. theologies are not entirely incompatible. Well, he, I think he also was including some of the darker aspects of Odin. Right. The problem was that in the late 80s, the U.S. was under the satanic panic. I remember this pretty well. I was in high school at the time, and everybody was convinced that there were backward satanic messages in the purveyors of demonic heavy metal, like sticks. I grew up just outside of West Memphis, Arkansas. That's all I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. The, the the scary Satanists with the van with the moon on it were going to come steal your blonde-haired children and sacrifice them. Mm-hmm. And that's what led up to the whole West Memphis <laughs> 3 thing, which is a whole other story. But if you guys have questions about it, we can talk later. Our, our right. SCA group in Mississippi was told by the university that we could no longer wear cloaks to our meetings, or we would lose our campus charter because people had complained that we were a satanic coven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cloaks are, are very uh, scary. Yes. This, the, this, was, this was the atmosphere of the time. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really, a, a, I mean, I remember I was an older elementary school, and like my parents really were genuinely convinced this was happening, and they were showing us videos at church. I mean, this was a intense time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, D&D was supposedly a, a gateway drug to occultism that would teach you how to really, I don't know, cast Bigby's grasping hand or something like that and, you know, summon up occult forces to help your paladin take out the red dragon or well, something. I'd... And what they don't realize, Ben, it wasn't D&D. Yeah. It was Magic the Gathering that got me. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, on a on a somewhat more sinister note... This is the time when people were having these recovered memories of satanic yeah. ritual abuse. Yeah. There were those uh, daycare centers where the kids were encouraged to testify to uh, having been ritually abused in very bizarre ways. Most of this turns out to be recovered memory syndrome. It turns out to be much easier to plant memories in someone else's head if you ask them the right questions and really want them to be there. But this is the time that we're talking about. This is the time when Geraldo Rivera did a big TV special about this underground network of satanic cults uh, that was, you know, potentially sacrificing millions of children a year or something like that. Hey, Ben. Yes. Throw a chair at Geraldo. Ah, yes. Throw Throw a chair chair at Geraldo, Geraldo, you Nazi Nazi punks, you Nazi punks, you Nazi Nazi punks. punks. We won't sing the rest because we don't want to get rated mature on iTunes. Yeah, there was was a New Orleans rock band that did covers of La Bamba with (laughs) lyrics like, throw a chair at Geraldo. (laughs) 
they're called Dash Rip Rock. Check them out. Yeah. Anyway, so in all of this, you have Edred and James Chisholm have been long-term members of the Temple of Set, which actually is satanic, although not satanic in the way that everybody thinks. Would you call it Setanic? Call it whatever you like. <laughs> And in 1989, the leader of the North Texas Kindred, which has affiliated very early with the Ring of Troth, finds out about this. His magical name was uh, Solve, or uh, Ingvar Solve Ingvason, if memory serves. His mundane name was Rob Meek. He was a former Episcopal priest, and he had been disabled because of an inoperable brain tumor. And he'd actually joined the Ring of Troth with great enthusiasm and had briefly served as secretary and was very, very keen on the whole thing. But he just wasn't stable. And he had apparently, he couldn't work, so he spent an awful lot of time watching TV, uh, including Geraldo's special on uh, Satanism. And he'd somehow found out that Edred and James were long-term members of the Temple of Set and went ballistic and started spreading horrible rumors to everybody that he could. This was something of a black eye for the troth. The AA issued a statement claiming that uh, Satanism and Asatru could not have anything to do with each other. So did the Odinic Rite. I've actually got the text of um, one of these right here. Okay, this is from the, the Odinic Rites Bulletin. Christians and Satanists are two sides of the same metal, whatever names they may choose to work under. The former have persecuted us, the latter may try to subvert us, but the restoration of our forefathers' faith will be pursued steadfastly by the Odinic Rite, and our noble ideals will be maintained unadulterated by alien and negative perversities. Right is always on our side, for the gods are with us. So that's 1989 there uh, from the Odinic Rights magazine. And that really was a rough time because that was the, I think the mindset of the time really kind of informed that. I think if something like that came out now, people would just laugh and think it was funny. Yeah, it's not nearly the, you know, the dynamite that it was back then. But uh, after some fallout from that, Edred and James uh, laid down their offices and James turned over the office of steersman to uh, Prudence Priest. Thanks once again for joining us at our live Heathen History Podcast episode we recorded out at Troth Moot. Uh, you want to support us? We have a Patreon. Please go there. I post a lot of stuff there. We got free stuff, previews, special gifts, access. We've got a Facebook group where you can ask Ben questions and he'll answer them. His wife's a member. She'll make him. So you can do that at patreon.com forward slash heathen history. And you can follow us on Twitter at heathen history or Facebook at facebook.com slash heathen history for updates. And as always, our show notes and sources are available on our website, heathenhistory.com. Where you can also go and see a biography of both of us that I wrote. They're pretty sad. Uh, our theme music is Happy Viking by Roller Music. And our show is edited by Hands On Keyboard. For the Heathen History Podcast, I'm Lauren. And I'm Ben. Wassail, Wassail y'all. y'all.